In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in again to another episode of the OGGN HSE podcast sponsored by Anderson Hauser. Anderson Hauser is your reliable U.S. and internationally based partner for measurement instrumentation services and solutions. Anderson Hauser, the people for process automation. Also check out our complete line of oil and gas podcast by going to OGGN.com and clicking on the find your podcast link. If you enjoy this podcast, then please tell Anderson Hauser thank you for sponsoring the show by going to our OGGN Anderson Hauser website, which you can find a link to in the show notes and register for a monthly giveaway. Also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and that contact information you can also find in the show notes. Today, we have on the show a repeat guest. Today, we have Drew Hinton with Aero Safety. Drew, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, I actually, it's been almost a year now since you came on the show. And so what happened was I actually had you on the show the first time because I saw a post that you had placed on LinkedIn, which dealt with the subject of near miss incidents. And I was intrigued by the post. I was intrigued by what you said. And then you got a lot of comments on that post. And so that's what we talked about last time. And you just started Aero Safety. You were just a little over one year into the company. So then it popped up on my screen here. Oh, I guess last week or a week before last or whatever. And you guys, you just celebrated your two year anniversary at Aero Safety. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. We're two years this month. So we're excited. We're growing and we're looking forward to helping out more people across the country. Okay. So just to refresh everybody's memory, tell us again where you are. Aero Safety, we're a safety consulting firm. We're based out of Glasgow, Kentucky, which is South Central Kentucky, about halfway between Louisville and Nashville. But we've got employees that work in the Louisville, Kentucky area. And we've also got one down in Austin, Texas, but we travel nationwide. We've literally got customers from New Hampshire to Texas and Florida to Colorado and just about everywhere in between. So we're across all states and all industries. Well, in fact, speaking of that, actually, when we talked the first time you were coming on, that was part of our discussion the last time, because you actually didn't have any oil and gas clients at the time. And I made reference to the fact, and this is something that I've talked to several other safety people about health safety in the environment is something that relates to any industry. And there's a lot of things. In fact, I believe we talked about this on the podcast last year. Sometimes what you need to do is you need to look at other industries. You can sometimes learn things from them that you wouldn't pick up in, in your own industry, but I think you got some oil and gas clients now, don't you? Yeah, we do. We've got a few, especially down in the Texas area. We've got a couple that's in the Houston area, Baytown area, that are suppliers for the oil and gas industry. They make large gate valves and different types of valves for refineries and different types of oil and gas industries. And then we also, our company, we partner with Draeger. And so we did a joint training with Draeger for Marathon Refinery. Last year, we do confined space workshops, excavation workshops. Like we are starting to get more and more involved with the oil and gas industry. And, and like you said, whether it's oil and gas or it's construction or it's manufacturing, 
you know, the hazards can be learned from other industries outside of your scope or outside of your realm. Well, that's exactly right. Well, have you had any more interesting LinkedIn posts like the one that caught my attention last year on near misses? <laughs> We've had several, you know, a lot of the posts we put on there is, you know, attempting to try to generate some discussion. Some things are just more you know, informative, but we have, We've put out several posts and articles, especially kind of in my wheelhouse is emergency response and preparedness, whether it's chemical emergency or medical, just kind of your emergency action plans in the workplace. And so we've had a lot of discussion around that topic, but also, you know, as things come throughout, you know, in the news and things kind of, you know, go through OSHA regulations and kind of go through changes over the years, we'll talk about various topics. So of course, COVID-19 was a big thing that we talked about, but also things that are related to, you know, workplace violence. It's still a pretty active and pretty common topic that we discuss. And it's, you know, it's, I hate to say it's slowed down. And I guess it has, you know, compared to previous years, but it still is an issue. And you're starting to see more and more companies that are interested in that. Had one just last week ask about providing an active shooter training workshop for their facility. So we're starting to see people get back to that in-person or more, you know, broad scope of training rather than the kind of the virtual or online training. So we're, well, we're starting to see more of those discussions take place. Well, you mentioned this. First of all, I wanted, since we're talking about LinkedIn posts, aren't you becoming kind of like a podcast personality? Didn't I see you <laughs> featured on some other podcasts? Yeah, I've, I've been on a few different ones in different industries. You know, we've had some other ones that are specialized in oil and gas and also kind of some that are just generalized safety podcasts as well. And so any way that we can kind of get that information knowledge out that we try, we try to do that. So anything you're particularly focused on or passionate about right now? I mean, one of the big things that we've been getting a lot of hits on and questions about, and it's kind of one of our passions is kind of the technical rescue side of things. And one of the, if you dive even deeper into that specific topic, one that we're starting to see more and more of that I personally enjoy doing is what I call the high angle rescue, but Auntie refers to it as rescue from heights. So if a person was working with a personal fall rest system and they were to fall off and hanging in the air for an extended period of time, how to get those down. Because sometimes it's, is it, you know, if you have the availability and the space, sometimes you can literally just take a scissor lift, go underneath the person and raise up and get them in the basket. And it's a pretty simple rescue. But there are some other ones that are more complex. We did a two day class, 16 hour class up in Chicago back to the first week of December. And it was a little bit more technical minded aspect of it. If you, you know, using air quotes here, but they were used building the new Walmart logistics or Walmart distribution center. And so the contractors that were working in there, they were in these racks and you had to walk. If you had somebody that was hanging by the, the suspension or the fall protection harness, if they got them up, they would still have to walk, you know, hundred plus feet to the middle of that racking system, which, you know, several hundred feet, several hundred yards long, just to get to the stairs and then go down four or five, six flights of stairs to get them down. And so we looked at, you know, using Stokes baskets, using different types of methods that you can get them down from that position. You know, like I said, sometimes it's easy enough to where you can literally just get a, a scissor lift and area lift close to it, but it's not always an option, whether it's availability issues or somebody's using that piece of equipment or it's just, you don't have it on your site. And so I like doing that. And we like doing that. A couple of my guys went up there and taught that class and, you know, it's one of the more hands-on ones. You know, we spend a little bit of time in the classroom, but, you know, the students really enjoy it, getting out there, you know, hanging up in the air, trying to get the rescue victim. We had a, a full-size mannequin that we used to put in a harness and hung up in the air. So they got to enjoy, you know, actually getting out of their seats and actually doing some some new skills that they haven't really used before. 
Okay, so you do use a mannequin. They don't participate in hanging from the height. No, we don't put them at risk for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so again, what you're actually doing is you're being proactive. You're saying here we're recognizing a risk or we're recognizing a safety hazard. And first of all, we want to do whatever we can to prevent the fall. But in the event that that happens, then you have to be prepared for the emergency situation. And that's where it's critical to have proper training. Is that right? Yep, absolutely. And that's, you know, I was just having a discussion with, you know, a fellow safety professional on one of the networks about that particular situation. They said that they were starting a fall protection program from scratch and didn't kind of really know where to start and where to kind of head out. And so I recommended the ANSI standard. If anybody that knows me knows that I'm really big and, and a huge proponent of you know, the national or voluntary consensus standards such as NFPA, ANSI, you know, APIs, things like that, because they do tell you how to do it. So OSHA pretty much just tells you this is what has to be done. And so those ANSI standards will tell you, specifically within the rescue kind of staying on this topic, it'll tell you how to evaluate your local fire department's response. Because I'll be the first one to tell you just from being a career firefighter and a volunteer in the past, you know, most of the times you don't want to wait on the fire department to respond. And so it'll tell you, you know, how to evaluate their pre-plans, the fire department's pre-plans, look at them and, and make that determination on whether or not that's going to be accurate and able to make that prompt rescue in a timely manner. And so a lot of people don't really look at that until something happens. You know, they think that, okay, we'll call the fire department, but, you know, do they have the staffing to do it? Do they have the equipment to do it? A lot of departments may have somebody that's trained to make that rescue, but the equipment's at a different station. So they may just think that, okay, we have a fire department or fire station that's three minutes down the road, but maybe that station doesn't have all the equipment and they're having to wait on another station that's maybe 20 minutes down the road to arrive in order to get set up. So it adds to that delay. And people don't realize that, you know, OSHA doesn't mention anything about, you know, kind of a time frame. Again, they tell you, you know, provide for a prompt rescue, but they don't really tell you what that prompt rescue is. And of course that varies from one situation to the next. If they're, you know, hanging for a few minutes versus a little bit longer and, and it factors in, you know, the person's physical characteristics, their weight, their physical condition, the harness fit, all that stuff. But ANSI actually gives you a six minute time frame that says you should have a make contact with that, the rescue subject or the person in the harness hanging within six minutes. So that gives you a little bit of a goal to reach for and understand, okay, can the fire department get here and get set up and make contact with that person within six minutes? If not, we need to start evaluating in-house, you know, possibilities. And so, access to this ANSI information? If it's a paid subscription, I want to say the ANSI, like the Z359 standard, which is the fall protection code. I could be completely wrong. I want to say it's around $100 to $150. But, you know, like I was talking with a person the other day about starting from scratch, I said, this is a great, you know, resource. It pays itself off, even if it is $150. You know, there are some standards that are free, you know, especially like NFPA standards. They're free to access online. You can't print them off or copy them or anything, but you can view those online 100% free. But, you know, some of those standards, depending on your industry, are more worth it and worth that investment. Like I said, if it's 150 bucks, you know, if you're especially starting from scratch, it's going to pay itself off in the long run. Oh, yeah, that's cheap by a long shot. Absolutely. Okay, so, Drew, you mentioned something that kind of caught my attention just a second ago. You just automatically make the assumption that we can call the fire department if something happens because they're three minutes down the road. But as you said, that particular, I guess not all fire departments are equipped the same. Is that right? Right. You know, if you're in a metropolitan or or a decent sized city or town, then 
you may have a fully staffed department, but that's not always the case, especially if you start getting out to the rural areas. You know, I had a customer of one of my clients that I was visiting one of their job sites doing some audits and inspections. And I was trying to figure out, okay, do you all provide confined space rescue for my client's crews while they're here or do we need to provide our own? And they said, well, we rely on the local fire department. And this is out in the middle of nowhere. And I said, well, they're all volunteers, so nobody's going to be showing up. You might get somebody, but odds are you're not. So the next closest responding staffed agency was 45 minutes each direction. There was two departments. And so I said, oh, you know, that kind of cued me in to say, okay, we need to go ahead and get our either our own internal rescue team or, you know, hire a third party to come in and do rescue standby. But, you know, like I said, and sometimes you may be lucky enough to where the department has a very informative website, I guess you could call it, because some fire departments will on their website will tell you, you know, descriptions on each station. Here's what apparatus is at each station. And here's what that apparatus is responsible for. You know, it's responsible for technical rescue or fire suppression or vehicle extrication, whatever it may be. And some of them are not. Some of them are literally just tell you where the stations are and that's it. But that ANSI D359 standard for the fall protection tells you to evaluate, you know, their rescue procedures. So the fire department's already required to have kind of a general pre-plan in place by the NFPA standards. But ANSI tells you that you have to have them come out, view your site, view your hazards, and they come up with a site-specific plan, and then they submit that to you, and you make the determination whether or not that's effective or not. You know, if they come back and say, you know, A, we can do it, and this is the general time frame we should be able to go to, and then, or B, you know, we can't do it at all, we don't have the capability, or we can do it, but we're going to have to wait on other responding agencies. Because even if, you know, they're in their station, that would be sometimes the more ideal situation is that you know where they're at, but let's say they are clearing a medical call on the complete opposite side of their fire district, and now they get they get dispatched. Now they're have to go all the way across their counties, county to respond to you. And some departments are a little bit more proactive in that aspect. I know when I was on fire department in Louisville, we went to GPS on our apparatus, and so you know we essentially eliminated all those you know, I'm using air quotes here, invisible district lines to where previously, hey, this was our fire district, only we respond no matter where we're at. And so they went to GPS on all the apparatus so that no matter what district, where you were at in that whole county, whatever the closest unit was, they responded to that incident, which makes sense. But you know, unfortunately, it took us several years to get to that. But if we were in somebody else's district eating lunch or doing a joint training together and they got knocked down on a fire structure call or technical rescue, Whoever was closest that was able to respond with capabilities, no matter if it's your district or not, you were going. So that helps knock down a lot of the response time. But again, it still may not be sufficient depending on your hazards. I would think if you're trying to plan for all that sort of thing, and you might do well to just take a little visit down to your local firehouse. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. There are more than, you know, most departments I can speak from. They're more than happy to welcome you into their firehouse and talk to them or they're just as happy to come out to your site because, you know, they don't get a lot of realistic training, you know, compared to what we, most people think in Louisville, we would have some confined space simulators and trench simulators and things like that, but nothing to actually go into. So, you know, especially if you can run a, a scenario, a training just to one, prepare yourself internally, but also evaluate them. If you say, Hey, come out to our facility and let's do a joint training together. We're going to evaluate you as you're doing it. Well, like I said, they're just as happy if you go out of there to the station and talk to them and sit down and they'll help you and guide you. And they'll tell you a lot of kind of industry best practices. They'll Again, you can evaluate 
what equipment they have and ask all the questions you want to do. They're going to be more than welcome to help you out in that situation. Yeah, but having them come out, that's a great idea. Even doing a, no pun intended, but doing a fire drill. Right, <laughs> so, right. So to speak. And sometimes I always joke about it. You know, I worked at a chemical manufacturer. I was a global EHS manager for a chemical manufacturer in Indiana. And we actually had a facility down in Texas City. But we had the local fire department come in and do some pre-planning for our, our chemical side of things. We had a lot of pretty toxic stuff, anything from anhydrous ammonia to several types of acids and hydroxides to some stuff that'll cause you to, you know, more or less take one breath and you've got cancer. And so we brought them in to do a pre-plan and a lot of them kind of joked around, but they said, you know, if you all have a leak or a release, we're calling in sick that day because <laughs> they, they knew that we had some pretty serious stuff there, which I joked around with them just because they knew me personally from my fire department experience, but that also kind of, you know, bolstered and helped out my case of saying, Hey, let's build our own internal hazmat team. I'll tell everybody I'm a big, proponent of building your own internal rescue team if you have that capability. And so that kind of helped solidify my case. But we also found situations like we were talking about earlier, you know, one station had most of the trained staff and another station had all the equipment. So, you know, they're still going to respond in some capacity. I said, if we can get our crews trained to respond and get the ball rolling at the beginning and then let them come over, you know, whenever they can and kind of take over later on, we're at least mitigating that hazard and helping it prevent from spreading as much as possible. Okay. So aero safety is doing well, huh? Yeah, we're doing really well. Like I said, compared to the last time we talked, it was just kind of just me doing about 99.9% of the work. You know, I would outsource a few things, but we're up to, including myself, now four employees, like I said, two in Louisville and one in Austin, Texas. And you know, we travel all across the country and just about every topic you can think of, we're involved in it in some capacity. Well, that's great. You know, last time we talked about a scissor lift incident, where they were doing some things they weren't supposed to be doing and it resulted in an accident. One guy was able to get off with relatively a few minor bruises and scratches, but another guy was busted up pretty bad. And it again resulted from, you know, not following proper safety protocols. And and we got off into talking about how you've got to deal with the psychological aspect of safety getting people to think about what we're doing here and our safety programs and everything aren't, you know, designed to be traffic cop type things, but they really are designed to make you come home safe over your career. You got any other memorable incidents that might give us some more insight into the importance of what we're talking about here? Yeah. One that actually we did a recent Haswalper class over in Missouri recently and Anytime I do a Haswell class, I always talk about the importance of communicating kind of on the same topic, communicating with your fire department. Because we had a, I'm saying we is that this was back when I was at the fire department. We got dispatched one time in Louisville, came out as a commercial fire alarm. And so we responded thinking that's going to be commercial fire alarms. Maybe somebody burnt some popcorn, burnt some wine, something that's probably not going to be a serious issue. So we show up kind of nonchalant, not thinking it's going to be a big deal. And then we get there and there are people that are outside of the facility, you know, more or less screaming and come to find out that there was an HF hydrofluoric acid leak. And their mentality, that employer's mentality was to pull the pull station on the, on the wall. And that would be their way of notifying us that they have a leak. So they don't realize that you pull the pull station it just called, knocks out as a commercial fire alarm. That's all we get. And so we got there, realized that this is a whole lot different than what we were dispatched to. So we had added to that delay in response because now we had to back out. You know, we pulled up in the parking lot, see people kind of screaming. 
we set up some quick emergency decon, set up the aerial ladder, started flowing master streams that we couldn't do anything because we didn't have the hazmat equipment with us. All the we level A suits, decon, stuff like that. So literally all we could do was set up the master stream and start flowing water. That way, if they wanted to go underneath that, they could. And so now we had to, like I said, back up a little bit, knock out the hazmat response team to get there. And then they're going to do their setup and, and evaluation as well. So again, that added to that response team. So big change from, like I said, being knocked out and dispatched as a commercial fire alarm to get there to find a, a major hydrofluoric acid leak, which is pretty nasty stuff for those of you all that haven't dealt with it. Oh, absolutely. But now how long ago was this? This was back in 2014 or 2015. So it was about six or seven years ago. That's not that long ago. So what would have been, I mean, how would you fix that problem? You know, we had a meeting with that particular facility. We as the fire department, we had a meeting with them after that happened and discussed that particular topic. He said, this isn't the way to notify us of a chemical release or chemical emergency. Pulling the fire alarm just notifies dispatch and your monitoring agency, whether it's you know, ADT, whoever the company is, it just tells them that you're saying there's a fire alarm. And so we told them that either you have a couple of different options. You can either A, put in a multi-alert system. So some places will have alert systems or alarm systems that you can more or less you push a button or, you know, dial a certain number on the phone. You know, this one's going to knock out a severe weather emergency. This one's going to be a fire related emergency. This will be a chemical related emergency. Or if all else fails and they don't want to invest that money, then simply call 911 and tell them there's a chemical emergency. Clearly communicate that across so that we know what we're showing up to. Because like I said, that delayed their response, you know, delayed us providing, you know, actual treatment and being able to get in there and stop the actual HF leak. It was around 30 minutes before, you know, the hazmat team showed up, got set up, got decon squared away, and then made entry and isolated the leak, took care of the decon, you know, getting the patients all squared away. So, you know, if you're dealing with hydrofluoric acid, which, you know, eats away pretty quickly, pretty strong acid, if I'm the one that's on that, I'm going to want you there ASAP. So like I said, we gave them a couple of different options of either, you know, improvising their alarm system to have multiple different types of emergencies communicated, or, you know, as if all else fails, just simply call 911. We told them if it's chemical emergency, do not pull that pull station. You know, that's going to let your employees know to evacuate, but it sends us a completely different message. Well, sounds to me like what this company needed was a good safety analysis from somebody like Aero Safety, huh? Right, right. So <laughs> that would be ideal. <laughs> well, Drew, thanks again for coming on the show. I'm glad that it's been a good year for you since last time we spoke. And again, like last time, we'll include your LinkedIn contact information and website in the show notes so anyone listening can contact you directly. Finally, as we close out today, I want to thank everyone for listening. Please tune in again next week for another episode of Anderson Hauser's Oil and Gas HSE podcast. Again, thanks to our sponsor, Anderson Hauser, a global leader in measurement, instrumentation, services, and solutions for industrial process engineering. Anderson Hauser, the people for process automation. Do me a favor, guys. Please leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify or whichever platform you listen to. Like us on LinkedIn. Use all your social networking to tell your friends about us. And we'll see you next time. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.